George Orwell's Homage to Catalonia, Chapter 8. The days grew hotter, and even the nights grew tolerably warm. On a bullet-chip tree in front of our parapet, thick clusters of cherries were forming. Bathing in the river ceased to be an agony and became almost a pleasure. Wild roses with pink blooms the size of saucers straggled across the shell holes round Torre Fabian. Behind the line, he met peasants wearing wild roses over their ears. In the evenings, they used to go out with green nets hunting quails. He spread over the net, over the tops of the grasses, and then lay down and made a noise like a female quail. Any male quail that was within hearing then came running towards you, and when he was underneath the net, he threw a stone to scare him, whereupon he sprang into the air and was entangled in the net. Apparently only male quails were caught, which struck me as unfair. There was a section of Andalusians next to us in the line now. I did not know quite how they got to this front. The current explanation was that they had run away from Malaga so fast they had forgotten to stop at Valencia. But this, of course, came from the Catalans, who professed to look down on the Andalusians as a race of semi-savages. Certainly, the Andalusians were very ignorant. Few, if any of them, could read. And they seemed not to even know one thing that everybody knows in Spain, which political party they belonged to. They thought they were anarchists, but were not quite certain. Perhaps they were communists. They were gnarled, rustic-looking men, shepherds or laborers from the olive groves, perhaps, with faces deeply stained by the ferocious suns of farther south. They were very useful to us, for they had extraordinary dexterity at rolling the dried-up Spanish tobacco into cigarettes. The issue of cigarettes had ceased, but in Montfleurite it was occasionally possible to buy packets of the cheapest kind of tobacco, which in appearance and texture was very like chopped chaff. Its flavor was not bad, but it was so dry that even when you had succeeded in making a cigarette, tobacco promptly fell out and left an empty cylinder. The Andalusians, however, could roll an admirable cigarette, and had special technique for tucking the ends in. Two Englishmen were laid low by sunstroke. My salient memories of that time are the heat of the midday sun, and working half-naked with sandbags, punishing one's shoulders, which were already flayed by the sun, and the lousiness of our clothes and boots, which were literally dropping to pieces, and the struggles with the mule, which brought our rations, and which did not mind rifle fire, but took to flight when shrapnel burst in the air, and the mosquitoes just beginning to be active, and the rats, which were a public nuisance and would even devour leather belts and cartridge pouches. Nothing was happening except an occasional casualty from a sniper's bullet and the sporadic artillery fire and air raids on Huesca. Now that the trees were in full leaf, we had constructed sniper's platforms like machans and the poplar trees that fringed the line. On the other side of Huesca, the attacks were petering out. The anarchists had had heavy losses and had not succeeded in completely cutting the Haka road. They had managed to establish themselves close enough on either side to bring the road itself under machine gun fire and make it impassable for traffic. But the gap was a kilometer wide, and the fascists had constructed a sunken road, a sort of enormous trench along which a certain number of lorries could come and go. Deserters reported that in Huesca there were plenty of munitions and very little food, but the town was evidently not going to fall. Probably it would have been impossible to take it with 15,000 ill-armed men who were available. Later in June, the government brought troops from Madrid front and concentrated 30,000 men in Huesca with an enormous quantity of airplanes, but still the town did not fall. When we went on leave, I had been 115 days in the line, and at the time this period seemed to me to have been one of the most futile of my whole life. I joined the militia in order to fight against fascism, and as yet I had scarcely fought at all, and merely existed as a sort of passive object, doing nothing in return for my rations except to suffer from cold and lack of sleep. Perhaps that is the fate of most soldiers in most wars. But now that I can see this period in perspective, I do not altogether regret it. 
I wish indeed that I could have served the Spanish government a little more effectively, but from a personal point of view, from the point of view of my own development, those first three or four months that I spent in the line were less futile than I then thought. They formed a kind of interregnum in my life, quite different from anything that had gone before and perhaps from anything that is to come. They taught me things that I could not have learned in any other way. The essential point is that all this time I'd been isolated. For at the front, one was almost completely isolated from the outside world. Even of what was happening in Barcelona, one had only a dim conception. Among people who could roughly, but not too inaccurately, be described as revolutionaries, this was the result of the militia system, which on the Aragon front was not radically altered till about June 1937. The workers' militias, based on the trade unions and each composed of people of approximately the same political opinions, had the effect of canalizing into one place all the most revolutionary sentiment in the country. I had dropped more or less by chance into the only community of any size in Western Europe where political consciousness and disbelief in capitalism were more normal than their opposites. Up here in Aragon, one was among tens of thousands of people, mainly though not entirely of working-class origin, all living at the same level and mingling on terms of equality. In theory, it was perfect equality, and even in practice it was not far from it. There was a sense in which it would be true to say that one was experiencing a foretaste of socialism, by which I mean that the prevailing mental atmosphere was that of socialism. Many of the normal motives of civilized life, snobbishness, money, grabbing, fear of the boss, etc., had simply ceased to exist. The ordinary class division of society had disappeared to an extent that is almost unthinkable in the money-tainted air of England. There was no one there except the peasants and ourselves, and no one owned anyone else as his master. Of course, such a state of affairs could not last. It was simply a temporary and local phase in an enormous game that is being played over the whole surface of the earth. But it lasted long enough to have its effect upon anyone who experienced it. However much one cursed it at the time, one realized afterwards that one had been in contact with something strange and valuable. One had been in a community where hope was more normal than apathy or cynicism, where the word comrade stood for comradeship and not, as in most countries, for humbug. One had breathed air of equality. I am well aware that it is now the fashion to deny that socialism has anything to do with equality. In every country in the world, a huge tribe of party hacks and sleek little professors are busy proving that socialism means no more than a planned state capitalism with the grad motive left intact. But fortunately, there also exists a vision of socialism quite different from this. The thing that attracts ordinary men to socialism and makes them willing to risk their skins for it, the mystique of socialism, is the idea of equality. To the vast majority of people, socialism means a classless society, or it means nothing at all. And it was here that those months in the militia were valuable to me. For the Spanish militias, while they lasted, were sort of microcosm of a classless society. In that community where no one was on the make, where there was a shortage of everything but no privilege and no bootlicking, one got perhaps a crude forecast of what the opening stages of socialism might be like. And after all, instead of disillusioning me, it deeply attracted me. The effect was to make my desire to see socialism established much more actual than it had been before. Partly, perhaps, this was due to the good luck of being among Spaniards who, with their innate decency and their ever-present anarchist tinge, would make even the opening stages of socialism tolerable if they had the chance. Of course, at the time, I was hardly conscious of the changes that were occurring in my own mind. Like everyone about me, I was chiefly conscious of boredom, heat, cold, dirt, lice, privation, and occasional danger. It is quite different now. This period, which then seemed so futile and eventless, is now of great importance to me. It is so different from the rest of my life that already it has taken on the magic quality which, as a rule, belongs only to memories that are years old. It was beastly while it was happening. 
but it is a good patch for my mind to browse upon. I wish I could convey to you the atmosphere of that time. I hope I have done so a little in the earlier chapters of this book. It is all bound up in my mind with the winter cold, the ragged uniforms of the militiamen, the oval Spanish faces, the morse-like tapping of the machine guns, the smells of urine and rotting bread, the tiny taste of bean stews wolfed hurriedly out of unclean pannikins. The whole period stays with me with curious vividness. In my memory, I live over incidents that might seem too petty to be worth recalling. I'm in the dugout at Monte Posero again, on the ledge of limestone that serves as a bed, and young Ramon is snoring with his nose flattened between my shoulder blades. I'm stumbling up the mucky trench. Through the mist that swirls around me like cold steam, I'm halfway up a crack in the mountainside, struggling to keep my balance and to tug a root of wild rosemary out of the ground. High overhead, some meaningless bullets are singing. I am lying hidden among small fir trees on the low ground west of the Monte Oscuro with Cop and Bob Edwards and three Spaniards. Up the naked gray hill to the right of us, a string of fascists are climbing like ants. Close, in front of a bugle call, rings out from the fascist lines. Cop catches my eye, and with a schoolboy gesture, thumbs his nose at the sound. I am in the mucky yard at La Granja, among the men who are struggling with their tin pannikins round the cauldron stew. The fat and harassed cook is warding them off with a ladle. At a nearby table, a bearded man with a huge automatic pistol strapped to his belt is hewing loaves of bread into five pieces. Behind me, a cockney voice, Bill Chambers, with whom I quarreled bitterly and who was afterwards killed at Huesca, is singing, There are rats, rats, rats as big as cats, and the shell comes screaming over. Children of fifteen fling themselves in their faces. The cook dodges behind the cauldron. Everyone rises with a sheepish expression as the shell plunges and booms a hundred yards away. I am walking up and down the line of sentries, under the dark boughs of poplars, and the flooded ditch outside the rats are paddling about, making as much noise as otters. As the yellow dawn comes up behind us, the Andalusian sentry, muffled in this cloak, begins singing. Across no man's land, a hundred or two hundred yards away, you can hear the fascist sentry also singing. On April 25th, another section relieved us, and we handed over our rifles, packed our kits, and marched back to Montfleurite. I was not sorry to leave the line. The lice were multiplying in my trousers far faster than I could massacre them, and for a month past I had had no socks, and my boots had very little sole left, so that I was walking more or less barefoot. I wanted a hot bath, clean clothes, and a night between sheets more passionately than it is possible to want anything when one has been living a normal, civilized life. We slept a few hours in a barn in Montfleurite, jumped a lorry in the small hours, caught the five o'clock train at Barbastro, and, having the luck to connect with the fast train at Larita, were in Barcelona by three o'clock in the afternoon of the 26th, and after that, the trouble began.